This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. No Country for Old Men begins with a monologue from the perspective of Sheriff Ed Tom Bell. Recalling a young man who'd murdered a 14-year-old girl, Bell muses, The papers said it was a crime of passion, and he told me there wasn't no passion to it. He had been planning to kill somebody for about as long as he could remember, said that if they turned him out, he'd do it again said he knew he was going to hell. I thought I'd never seen a person like that, and it got me to wondering if maybe he was some new kind. But he wasn't nothing compared to what was coming down the pike. Somewhere out there is a true and living prophet of destruction, and I don't want to confront him. I know he's real. I have seen his work. That prophet of destruction is Anton Chigurh, a killer so cold and merciless that it seems impossible he could exist outside of fiction. But this same kind of monster is real. He once lived on a quiet street in Dumont, New Jersey, with his wife and three children. His name was Richard Kuklinski. Welcome to Villains, a podcast original. I'm Alastair Murden. On this show, we look at the world's most infamous villains, both real and imagined. We aim to understand how villainy translates from history into our greatest fictional stories. You can find episodes of Villains and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Villains for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Villains in the search bar. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. Last week, we looked at Anton Chigurh, the mysterious, cold-blooded hitman from No Country for Old Men. This week, we will be turning our focus to a real-life villain who occupies the same space in our cultural consciousness, Richard Kuklinski, nicknamed the Iceman. As we mentioned last week, Anton Chigurh is considered the most realistic psychopath ever portrayed in film. 
Psychopathy is not itself a recognized diagnosis, but its symptoms fall under the banner of antisocial personality disorder. Aggression, criminal behavior, disregard for social norms, no empathy for others, and no remorse. These traits are seen in an estimated 1 to 4% of the world population, including Richard Koklinski. During his three decades as a hitman, from the early 1950s to 1985, Kuklinski killed, by his own estimate, 100 to 250 people. Many of these kills were part of his work as a hitman for the Mafia, but others died simply because they were in the wrong place at the wrong time. Killing made Richard feel absolutely nothing. He took human lives as if he was stepping on an ant. This isn't to say he murdered for no reason at all. They always had it coming, he figured. Because they'd annoyed him, because they'd run afoul of the mob, or just because they'd wandered into his path. His passionless brutality is what made him so successful as a contract killer. There was no hesitation, no deliberation. He could not be reasoned with. To an extent, this was a part of Kuklinski's inborn nature, but he was also a product of his environment. Just as Anton Chigurh was desensitized to violence during the Vietnam War, Richard Kuklinski learned the art of bloodshed while he was growing up in Jersey City. Richard was surrounded by violence from the very day he was born in 1935. His father, Stanley, was an alcoholic with a hair-trigger temper. Richard's older brother, Florian, bore the brunt of the abuse. That is, until the day when Stanley hit the young Florian too hard and killed him. What Richard remembered most was that, with his brother gone, it meant he received twice as many beatings. His mother, Anna, could do nothing but stare at the wall and pray that Stanley's wrath wouldn't take another son away from her. But for all her prayer, God never arrived to save them. Things were just as bad at school. Richard was bullied relentlessly for his gawkiness, his tattered clothes, and his Polish heritage. And in the seedy parts of Jersey City, where mobs and gangs ran the streets, schoolyard bullies didn't pull their punches. When Richard was 13 in 1949, one of these bullies beat him so badly that he was bedridden for weeks. His mother wanted to go to the police, but Richard preferred to take matters into his own hands. When he finally regained his strength, he grabbed a wooden pole from the closet and waited outside the bully's apartment building. When the boy came home that evening, Richard raised his pole, stared him in the eye, and calmly beat him over the head until he stopped moving. He hadn't meant to kill the other boy, but as he looked down at his lifeless body, he didn't feel any regret. In fact, revenge felt good. It felt just. In that moment, he learned that when it came to violence, it was better to give than to receive. Even at the young age of 13, Kuklinski had developed the moral code that would govern the rest of his life. Like Chigurh, 
He'd seen from his home life that the world was a chaotic and brutal place. There was no order or purpose to the violence, no merciful higher power that would intervene. What he saw outside his home, in the organized crime-ridden neighborhoods of New Jersey, confirmed that there was only one law that governed the violence. The strong would always victimize the weak. And Richard much preferred to be one of the strong. In his teenage years, Kuklinski made a name for himself as someone who was not to be messed with. He dropped out of school and hung around the pool halls where mobsters gathered. His gawky stature filled out into six feet five inches of muscle. Soon, his massive size and predilection for fighting caught the attention of Carmine Genovese, a made man in the De Cavalcanti Mafia family. Kuklinski seemed like a perfect candidate for a job as an enforcer. He was put to work collecting money for the mobster and intimidating those who didn't pay up. The only problem? He had a bad habit of killing the debtors before they had a chance to pay. Crime was a job to him, and a very lucrative one, but there were some things more important to him than money. He'd inherited his father's temper, and his personal code said that anyone who provoked him had forfeited the right to live. But to succeed as a career criminal, Richard would have to learn the art of killing strategically, waiting to strike until the money was laid at his feet. At one point in the mid-50s, when Richard was in his early 20s, he was sent to Chicago to collect $70,000 from a man named Anthony DePetty. He rolled into O'Hare Airport, rocking a Fu Manchu mustache and long, pointed sideburns that, like Anton Chigurh's signature haircut, made him look strange and unsettling. The plan was to meet DePetty at a bar in the terminal, collect the money, and get right back on a plane to New Jersey. But when DePetty found him and handed him a black briefcase, only half the money was in it. He said he'd have the other $35,000 in a couple days. Richard didn't like this answer. If it were up to him, he would have killed DePetty right then and there for inconveniencing him. But he had a job to do, so he would have to let him live until the cash materialized. For the rest of the day, he followed DePetty around the city as he checked in with associates, none of whom had any of the missing money. That night, they checked into a hotel, sharing a room, because Kuklinski wasn't about to let the man out of his sight. The next day, they repeated the routine again until finally DePetty led Richard to an office, opened the safe, and handed over $35,000 in cash. By now, Richard was furious. He asked him why he didn't just turn over the money in the first place. DePetty said, because I didn't want to pay. Richard counted out the money, pulled out a gun, and shot him point blank in the chest. Eventually, it became clear that debt collection wasn't Kuklinski's strength. He thrived much more in a different role that of a hitman. He was cold, unflinching, and methodical, and he always got the job done without leaving behind any witnesses. Much like Anton Chigurh, 
even when Kuklinski wasn't murdering people for business reasons, he often killed just for the hell of it. Throughout the mid-1950s, he took to the streets of Manhattan, turning the West Side into his own personal hunting field. The provocations that led to these murders were often remarkably minor. A beggar who follows him down the street, a bar patron who insults him. Sometimes he dumped the bodies into the Hudson River. Most of the time, he just left them right where they dropped. By Richard's own estimate, in the span of a few years, he killed at least 50 men on the streets of New York, never women. He said, I don't kill women and I don't kill children, and anyone that does, doesn't deserve to live. This was a code he never broke, although he didn't seem to have any qualms about beating women within an inch of their lives. The rules that governed his violence were just as arbitrary as Chigurh's coin toss. Kuklinski never felt remorse for killing his victims. In fact, he once stated, I feel nothing inside for any of them. Nothing. They had it coming, and I did it. But unlike Chigurh, who after all was a literary creation, Kuklinski didn't wax philosophical about his role as the hand of fate. He didn't see any higher purpose in his acts of violence. He didn't even understand his own callousness. And at times, it deeply troubled him that he was able to be so cruel. This brings us to a point we'd be remiss not to mention. Richard Kuklinski was a living, breathing, human person. There are facts of his life that don't fit so neatly into the narrative of a cold-hearted angel of death. One of the most significant is that, when he wasn't slaughtering the homeless on the streets of New York, he was a friendly, suburban family man. And this is what makes him even scarier than any fictional villain. That a killer like this could actually exist, not as a one-dimensional force of evil, but as the neighbor next door or even as the father and husband at the kitchen table. Coming up, we'll look at the other side of Richard Kuklinski. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. In No Country for Old Men, Anton Chigurh is never given much of a backstory. He seems to have dropped out of thin air with no home, no relationships, and no emotions. We see only a small window of his life, one in which he exists solely as an agent of chaos and violence. This is how Richard Kuklinski would have seemed to his mob associates. He never socialized with mafia men, they never came to his house, they didn't even know his full name. He was referred to only as Big Rich or the Polak. This anonymity was partly to keep himself out of the crosshairs of the police, but it was also to protect his wife and children. 
In the spring of 1961, when Richard was 26, he made the acquaintance of 18-year-old Barbara Pedrici. He was immediately taken with her. She was confident, well-spoken, funny, and she had an innocence that Richard himself had never known. He began courting her like a gentleman, coffee dates, showing up to her office with flowers, driving her to and from work, eating dinner with her family. But his constant presence made Barbara uneasy. He was oppressively clingy. She never had a moment to herself. After the better part of a year, Barbara finally told Richard that she needed space and it might be best for them to see other people. In response, Richard pulled out his hunting knife, stabbed her in the shoulder, and calmly told her, You're mine, understand? You do what I tell you. He choked her until she was unconscious, drove her home, and when she woke up, he told her that if she tried to leave him, he would kill anyone who meant anything to her. Barbara believed him. She decided to stay quiet. Within a few years, Barbara and Richard were married with three children and a nice house in the suburbs. From the outside, the Kuklinskis were the perfect family. Nobody, not Barbara, not the neighbors, knew what Richard really did for a living. He told everyone he worked in film distribution, which technically was true. As a side gig, he was involved in a black market pornography ring run by the Mafia. Because of his careful anonymity and dispassionate compartmentalization, Kuklinski managed to live these two completely separate lives at once. To him, his job was just a job. There were stressful days, like when he had to chop up limbs to dispose of a body. But there were fun days, too. Like the day in the late 70s when a client offered to pay double if the marks suffered. Money wasn't much of a motivator for Kuklinski, but he loved a good challenge. At precisely 10 in the morning, the mark left his home in Nutley, New Jersey, and drove off on his way to work. When he got to a stop sign just a few blocks away, Richard was waiting for him. He flagged down the driver, and as soon as he stopped, Richard walked around to the driver's side, pulled out a gun, and pointed it at his head. He ushered the man out and thrust him into the trunk of his own car. Then he took him out to a cave in the Bucks County woods, taped his arms and legs together, and waited for the wild rats to gather. Before leaving, Richard set up a video camera on a tripod for proof that the job had been done and that the man had suffered terribly. When he came back four days later, there was nothing left but a pile of bones. He drove home, made himself a sandwich, and popped the videotape into the TV. The picture had turned out quite well, the man was perfectly in frame as the rats gathered and ate him alive. First they went for the ears, then the eyes, then they turned their teeth on the rest of his body. When he was finished with his sandwich, Richard turned the tape off and put it away so the kids wouldn't stumble upon it. A few days later, he gave the tape to the client and received double pay for a job well done. 
With successes like these, Richard built up a stellar reputation as a freelance executioner. He made a nice living, he enjoyed his work, and the police never suspected that the quiet Polish man in suburban New Jersey was involved in the Italian Mafia slayings in Manhattan. Because he wasn't Italian, Kuklinski couldn't join the Mafia even if he wanted to. But this was actually a plus. Since he wasn't attached to any one mob family, he could do jobs for any of them, and even if witnesses saw him at the scene, none of them would have any idea which rival ordered the hit. But there were never witnesses. Despite his imposing frame, Richard had a strange way of disappearing into a crowd. Much like Chigurh with his captive bolt pistol, he could appear, complete his task, and vanish without leaving a trace. His preferred murder method was cyanide poisoning. It was efficient, subtle, and extremely difficult to detect. A little bit sprinkled into someone's drink or injected into their back, and they'd be dead of what looked like a heart attack by the time Richard had left the building. And if anyone did catch on, they were promptly taken care of. It was his personal rule to kill anyone who threatened him, and that extended to those whose knowledge might threaten him in the future. There was only one instance where he broke this principle, and it was a mistake that led to his downfall. Phil Solomene was the only person who had seen both sides of Kuklinski's double life. He was the proprietor of a store known simply as The Store that sold all manner of black market goods. The two had been working together since the early 60s, and over the years, their partnership, which included selling hijacked goods and setting up murder robberies, had turned into a genuine friendship. Their families spent time together, they disposed of bodies together. Solomene was, in a sense, Richard's Carson Wells, the only person who truly knew him, or at least thought he did. But in 1981, Solomene made a costly mistake. His brother-in-law, Percy House, stiffed him on some money, so he offhandedly threatened him by mentioning what he and Richard had done to the last customer who gave him a hard time. Naturally, Percy House told his friends, who told their friends, who told their wives, and suddenly, half of New Jersey knew that Big Rich was a killer. By the end of 1981, the word had made it to Detective Patrick Kane of the New Jersey State Police. No one in the criminal underworld knew Big Rich's full name, but a quick search through the state records led Kane to Richard Kuklinski. As it turned out, in the past couple years, Kuklinski had already been questioned about three separate disappearances. He denied even knowing any of the victims, so the matter always ended there. On top of those, Kane managed to connect Richard to two more murders, both close associates of the loud-mouthed Percy House. He pulled together a case file so expansive, so complex, that his colleagues sarcastically called it the Manhattan Project. All of these crimes seemed so disparate that, apart from Kane, no one could believe they were all connected. George Maliband was shot point-blank in the head in Jersey City. 
Paul Hoffman was beaten to death with a tire iron in North Bergen. Danny Deppner was poisoned with cyanide. Gary Smith was choked to death with a metal wire. Different MOs, different areas, no apparent connections between the victims. The violence was so senseless that even seasoned lawmen couldn't fathom it. Until Kuklinski's photo was passed along to the NYPD Organized Crime Unit. A mafia informant recognized him as the Polak, a mysterious hitman who was a specialist at getting rid of bodies. The mafia was not a new development in New York and New Jersey. Ever since the Prohibition, organized crime had run the streets, and by the 1980s, gruesome, gang-related violence was de rigueur. But like Pablo Acosta's drug runners in No Country for Old Men, Richard Kuklinski represented something new and incomprehensible. He was not a mob type. He had never been captioned on surveillance tapes or wiretaps. He lived in a nice suburb with his wife and children, and apart from two incidents of road rage, his criminal record was spotless. No one in the mafia even knew his full name. Law enforcement had strengthened its focus on organized crime throughout the 70s and 80s, using new racketeering laws to bring down the mobs that had run the streets for decades. But these efforts were aimed at a specific kind of character, the powerful, ostentatious mafiosos that everyone recognized from The Godfather. They never stopped to consider the men like Kuklinski, who profited from the crime around them without the compulsive greed that led their more flamboyant counterparts to ruin. Those who were driven not by money or by power, but by sheer nihilism. To catch a man like Kuklinski, they would need someone who understood him, the Carson Wells to his Anton Chigurh, the only friend he hadn't killed, Phil Solomene. After a few threatening meetings with Detective Kane and the FBI, Solomene agreed to introduce Richard to a veteran undercover agent named Dominic Polifrone. Dom was an old friend of Solomene's, he said. They went back decades. He was a contract killer and a well-connected arms dealer, and he could get Richard anything he needed. As it happened, Richard had recently killed his cyanide supplier for overcharging him. As soon as he got his hands on some more poison, he was planning to kill the cop who'd been poking around in his neighborhood, Detective Pat Kane. Dom asked his supervisors, and after a bit of back-and-forth arguing, they decided that no, they could not under any circumstances sell cyanide to a serial killer. But they did come up with a plan B. Dom told Richard that he'd been hired for a hit related to a cocaine robbery, and he wondered if this cyanide technique would make the job easier. Richard explained in great detail how one would hypothetically use the poison to best effect, and then he personally offered to help. On the morning of December 17, 1986, Kuklinski drove to a rest stop at the New Jersey Turnpike, where Dom was waiting for him with a vial of white powder. Richard would prepare the cyanide while Dom drove to pick up the mark, and they'd meet back at the Turnpike in 30 minutes. But something seemed off to Richard. As soon as he got back into his car, 
He opened the vial and took a careful sniff. It definitely was not cyanide. Still, he didn't suspect Dom was working for the police. He assumed he was just a run-of-the-mill scammer. So Richard cut his losses and went home. The two officers who'd been sent to guard the Kuklinski house were taken by surprise when they saw him pull into the driveway with an armful of groceries. The entire strike team sped over from the turnpike and caught him by surprise, just as he was leaving the house to take Barbara to breakfast. It took eight officers to wrestle Richard out of the car. His massive wrists had to be shackled together with leg irons. But by afternoon, he was booked at the courthouse in Hackensack, New Jersey, charged with 19 felonies, including five counts of murder. When he was allowed his one phone call, he dialed Phil Solomene and said, Hey, Philly, how you doing? I just got off Route 80. I'm coming to see you. Then he hung up. Richard Kuklinski never returned to get his revenge. He didn't strangle Detective Kane with his handcuffs and escape into the desert. There was nowhere to run in the gridlocked streets of the urban jungle. Kuklinski spent the rest of his life in maximum security at Trenton State Prison, but his reputation as a force of destruction was only just beginning to take shape. We'll look at how Kuklinski became the Iceman right after this. Now back to the story. After a lifetime of anonymity, Richard Kuklinski's arrest and trial rocketed him to infamy. Based on the fact that he had frozen the body of one of his victims to obscure the time of death, the media dubbed him the Iceman. He became the subject of two books, a movie, and not one, not two, but three documentaries. An LA Times review called the first documentary a cold, cold look at evil incarnate. Iceman is perversely compelling to watch as he dispassionately describes techniques he used on his victims. Throughout the entire interview, Kuklinski remains stone-faced without an ounce of regret for his murders, which he estimated to number in the hundreds. His coolness is more frightening than any rabid snarl or maniacal laughter. But why? What is it about methodical, rational murderers like Anton Chigurh and Richard Kuklinski that makes them so terrifying? Although Chigurh was not directly based on Kuklinski, the two bear a lot of similarities. Most obviously, that they were both hitmen operating in the year 1980, and they both killed without remorse or emotion. But beyond those surface commonalities, the real and fictional villains both represented the same cultural fears. The early 1980s were a time of widespread chaos and panic across America. As we discussed last week, the Vietnam War divided public opinion and led to violent clashes between protesters. Soldiers were exposed to horrific carnage overseas and came back to face the anger and criticism of the countrymen they were supposedly fighting to protect. The sudden explosion of the Mexican drug trade turned the southern border into a killing field. 
This is the senseless violence personified by Anton Chigurh. But at the same time, there was a growing fear of a more sinister danger. Some evil force lurking just down the street that could strike anyone at any time without warning. In 1982, a batch of poison Tylenol pills caused a wave of deaths across Illinois. Two years later, Ronald Clark O'Brien killed his own son with poisoned Halloween candy, launching an urban legend that persists to this day. AIDS swept through cities, causing healthy young people to drop dead for no clear reason. The satanic panic led to paranoia that innocent daycare workers were subjecting children to ritual abuse. This fear found its perfect scapegoat in Richard Kuklinski. He was that monster under the bed, the evil hiding in the suburbs, the ruthless killer who dismembered bodies with a hacksaw and then went home to have dinner with his family. Interestingly, even though Shiger and Kuklinski can be said to represent the wider happenings of the culture around them, both men were also, in a way, cultural outsiders. Shiger's background and ethnicity are never described in No Country for Old Men. His name is unusual, but its origin is unclear. When casting the role for the film, the Coen brothers wanted someone who looked like they could have come from Mars. And that's to say nothing of his bizarre haircut. He is marked, from the very first glance, as one who does not belong. And as we discussed last week, Vietnam veterans like Chigurh were treated like the enemy when they came back home. There would be no one to talk to about his experiences, no one who could truly understand. In the same way, Kuklinski was a perpetual outsider, both among regular society and among the criminal underworld. As a child, he was bullied and ostracized. His untreated psychological problems, which were later diagnosed as antisocial personality disorder and paranoid personality disorder, made it impossible for him to form normal social relationships. On the criminal front, he was something of a lone wolf as well. He could never join the Mafia because he wasn't Italian, and he avoided spending any time with the men he worked for because it would put his family's safety at risk. His crimes only exacerbated the otherness he was already feeling. In Kuklinski's own words, Since I was a kid, I always felt like an outsider, like I didn't belong. And now, because of these things I did, I was really feeling that way again. I thought about going to a psychiatrist, but what would I say to a shrink? I torture and kill people for money and I like my work? I don't think so. So, cast out of society and traumatized by their encounters with violence, these two men chose to reject the conventions of the callous world around them. Instead, they embraced their own form of morality a code that was not idealistic, but realistic. Death is inevitable. Things are as they are. And if you found yourself in a killer's crosshairs, chances were you did something to deserve it. Chigurh considered it his mission to spread this gospel, 
He always spoke with his victims before he killed them, trying to help them understand and accept their fate. Before he killed Carla Jean Moss, he told her, Somewhere you made a choice. All followed to this. You can say that things could have turned out differently, that they could have been some other way. But what does that mean? They are not some other way. They are this way. And after considering his perspective, Carla Jean agreed. On the other hand, Kuklinski took no pleasure in enlightening others with his hopeless worldview. In an interview for the 1992 documentary The Iceman Tapes, he recounted a similar moment during one of his hired executions. It was a man and he was begging and pleading and praying, I guess, and he was please godding all over the place. So I told him he could have a half an hour to pray to God, and if God could come down and change the circumstances, he'd have that time. But God never showed up, and he never changed the circumstances. And that was that. Kuklinski admitted that out of his hundreds of murders, this was the only one he regretted. It struck him as unusually cruel to torment this man in his final moments with a truth so difficult to accept. Perhaps Kuklinski understood exactly what made him so fearful. The morality he lived by was impossible for most people to grasp. Because to accept that fate is merciless and death could come at any moment is to reject everything we've been taught about right and wrong, good and evil, law and order. It is, in a sense, a rejection of the entire social order. But while this rejection of society is portrayed as villainous and troubling when it comes to Chigurh and Kuklinski, the same traits take on a slightly different tone in the story of our next subject, Villanelle from the novel Codename Villanelle and the BBC series Killing Eve. Villanelle, like Chigurh and Kuklinski, is a psychopathic professional killer. But she is also a glamorous, globe-trotting young woman who is described by one reviewer as a manic pixie dream assassin. Despite her merciless, unpredictable violence, Villanelle is largely portrayed as sympathetic, even aspirational. In fact, her lawless lifestyle is so alluring that it even draws in the MI6 agent tasked with hunting her down. Next week, we'll look at Villanelle's characterization and explore what makes her so different from the two villains we've just discussed. We'll also try to answer why her magnetic charisma has the potential to be so frightening. Thanks for listening to Villains. We'll be back next week with our next episode. You can find all episodes of Villains and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Villains, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Villains on Spotify, just open the app and type Villains in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time. 
Villains was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Marler, and Carly Madden. This episode of Villains was written by Kate Gallagher. I'm Alistair Murden. 